This conversation with the Pakistan Director of Human Rights Watch, Ali Dayan Hassan, is the 11th in an audio series we're calling Another Pakistan, recorded in midsummer 2011. It's a co-production of the Watson Institute at Brown University and the Asia Society. I'm Christopher Leiden in Pakistan with Ali Dayan Hassan. He's the Pakistan Director of Human Rights Watch. The world has come to know him as the intrepid stand-up guy in what looked like an official murder of the news reporter Salim Shahzad. But the Shahzad story was not the beginning or the end of it. This is open source from the Watson Institute at Brown University. An American conversation, we call it, with Pakistani attitude this summer of 2011. Ali Dayan Hassan, where are we in the mix of military, mosque, and plain people, and human rights in Pakistan this summer? Pakistan is a, a fascinating place because it is a place where there has been a standoff between the people and the military for, well, much of its history. And uh, this is, in that sense, a multi-generational uh, fight for the soul of the country. And the way this works essentially is that because Pakistan is a Praetorian state, it is a military-dominated state, you have periods where the military retreats and civilian power is ascendant, and then there are periods when the military reasserts itself. Now, of course, there are very many reasons why there is this, this, this ongoing standoff but the fact is that uh, one day something will give and we are going through another one of those phases where it seems that there is space for civilian rule, whether Pakistani, polit the political class, whether Pakistani society can consolidate on this remains to be seen. You sensed a space opening to tell a very, very tough and damning truth about the murder of Salim Shahzad at the time. What was the risk then and where does it stand today? Well, the truth I told about Salim Shahzad was essentially that I believed, Human Rights Watch believed, that he had been abducted by the ISI. That is a truth that we have told over and over again. It is certainly about other reporters, about other reporters, about other political opponents of the ISI, about uh, um, any number of people. Hmm. Uh, it is certainly my view, and it is our organizational view that the ISI and Pakistan's military, more generally is the principal human rights abuser in this country. And uh, so, and this is the truth, certainly, that I have told over... I have now worked for Human Rights Watch for almost a decade. Before that, I was a journalist. And in both my incarnations, I've been very clear about this. Now, the question, of course, is not what you're saying, but who's listening and how well. And this time, uh, when uh, I raised the alarm about Salim Shahzad, it appeared that people were listening and there was traction to that claim in society at large. And that's actually what's different about it. What differs here is the reaction, really not the telling of it. It took, what, six weeks for the United States government to react to, and call it barbaric and unacceptable. What made the difference? Was it, is it a matter of languages, whether you're talking in Urdu or English, or, or just what? Or is something, is something tipping in the whole balance? Well, I think there are a series of uh, different things happening, and we shouldn't confuse uh, them necessarily. One of the things that is happening, of course, is, 
that uh, the military's compact with society, with Pakistani society, appears to be collapsing. Now, this was never the most savory of compacts. The way this went was that the military maintained that mm-hmm. it was the biggest bully on the block, that the Pakistani people should accept the fact that it was the biggest bully on the block. And in return, they guaranteed security and a level of, uh, of, of, of uh, if you like, peaceful authoritarianism. Now, what has happened is that the military has abjectly failed to be a guarantor of security. In that situation... When they do things like abduct journalists, uh, when they do things like uh, abduct and torture Mm -hmm. their political opponents, the pushback from society is greater. Uh, The month of May uh, was a terrible month for the Pakistani military. It began with the raid that captured and killed Osama bin Laden uh, by the US, and it ended with the murder of Salim Shahzad. The fact is that the ISI does remain the principal suspect in this particular case. There is a judicial commission at work. And certainly I hope that the judicial commission manages to identify the perpetrators, Mm. whoever they are. That said, I would point out to you that to date, um, the Pakistani military or its intelligence agencies have, or any of their personnel, have never been held to account for multiple allegations of abuse against them. How do they get away with it? And if they get away with it, how do you get away with saying they're getting away with it? Well, they get away with it because they have perpetrated and inculcated a culture of impunity for their abuses in Pakistan. Um, They have ruled unchallenged for the Mm. most part. Uh, They have been very brutal in in the crushing of challenges and dissenting voices, uh, 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 the the military establishment in this country. And uh, often they have, when they they, they have been pushed against the wall, they have reacted by, uh, uh, by allowing society to let off steam by retreating behind the scenes and allowing quasi civilian rule uh, in the country. Now, in terms of how I get away with it, well, um, I guess it's good luck. And perhaps it'll run out one day. But until it does, I have to do what I have to do. As, as, as I often say when, when uh, uh, I'm told that, mm. you know, the ISI is upset or the military is upset and you shouldn't say these things, I say it's nothing personal. These stresses and strains play themselves out in all sorts of ways. During the same emergency period when we were having this stressful time, it was my daughter's birthday party and there were about 30 kids in the house. And the guard from from my front gate came to me and he said, there are four men outside and they're calling you outside. And I looked at my wife and I laughed and I said, today of all days is a very bad day to be picked up. Really, couldn't they have come yesterday or tomorrow because we've got to do this birthday party? And I said to her, I said, okay, now I'm going out and, you know, better keep tabs. And if I don't return in three minutes, call all the relevant people. And she said, okay. And, you know, we were, both of us were taking this very seriously. And I went out to the gate and it was the puppeteers who'd come to do the puppet show for the birthday party. I was hoping party. it was the caterers or something. Yeah, and but but the point is that nothing happened, but that's the kind of sort of mental landscape you have in that kind of situation. I mean, that said, I should emphasize 
that I am very highly protected. I have a great support system, both within Pakistan and internationally. And really, I'm very, very fortunate. Uh, there can be few people who are better placed than I am to do this work. And, uh, and so therefore, I don't wish to overplay at all this business of danger and security. It's an occupational hazard. Um, and that's what it is. And, and I deal with it. I want to hear your story. Who are you? Where did you come from institutionally and personally to uh, in this enormously critical position? I come from uh, an interesting family, I should, I should expect. By interesting, I mean that, that, that my father and mother came from very different worlds. My, my father was a, uh, a communist in the 60s. He was a student uh, activist. Um, and essentially, as I have interpreted that, that the, the communism of, of, of that time, uh, as I understand what they were trying to do, was that there was always, and there remains, a desire for egalitarianism, equality, um, a just and fair uh, society mm. in actually what is a very unequal a very oppressive uh, um, social framework. And contextually, it manifests itself differently at different times. Now, of course, in the 60s, uh, uh, the, the, the rhetoric of, of, of that kind of egalitarianism was often found in the rhetoric of communism. And so I think that my, my, father, my father's communism essentially was that. He was a member of the PPP. Uh, subsequently a, 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 a founder member of the PPP. He was elected uh, as part of the left wing of the PPP. And he fell out very rapidly with Mr. Bhutto and was uh, sent to jail, to solitary yeah. confinement by Mr. Bhutto. And um, so my earliest memories were of jail and of court hearings and cases mm-hmm. and um, and not seeing my father or seeing him in prison. Um at that point, as a child, I remember uh, um, he was adopted as a, as a prisoner of conscience by amnesty. And I know that in all that uh, hardship, that sort of validation mattered to us as a family. It, it stayed with, with, with me. And, and, and I remember we had very little by way of resources. Uh, my father was a middle-class professional individual. Once he was in prison, we didn't have very much money. Um, my mother, who came from a, a far a more well-heeled uh, family, um, ran into, into problems because of her marriage uh, to my father, um, she, my mother's family, I, I like to sort of refer to them as the Mayflower people of Pakistan. <laughs> uh, they, were, they, they, they were people who were good people, but people who set up the state, privileged people, and they couldn't quite understand uh, this marriage that she had made with this communist revolutionary. But, but I grew up, what I'm trying to say is that I grew up straddling several worlds and I'm, I, I represent Human Rights Watch which is one of the largest human rights organizations in the world, certainly it's an American organization or a New York based organization we are not an American organization let me emphasize um, and I'm often asked oh, you're being particularly western and the point is that no, I'm not, these are my values the values of the human rights movement are my values and I'm Pakistani, 
I'm also many other things. I've lived a lot of my life in Britain. Um, Where did you go to school? I was in school in Karachi. I was in school in Lahore. I was in boarding school then in Wales. And I was at university in England. But if you were to ask me if I get a sense of that where my values come from, mm. they come from the values I was given at home. They really are not something that I picked up um, either at university or, or through uh, the auspices of my Welsh boarding school, which was a wonderful and fabulous place. Um, but, uh, but that's not where it's coming from. And, and, and I think that that's important. In this year, 2011, the Arab Spring, Tunisia, Egypt, has sort of created a whole new narrative, maybe for the Middle East, maybe for the world. Connect or disconnect what's happening in Pakistan from all of that? Well, I think that the disconnect is greater than the connect, actually. Hmm. Uh, because I think that there is... Um, these places, have, the Middle East and Pakistan actually have had very different histories. There is overlap, of course, but there is a lot of difference as well. The Middle East certainly has remained in, in, in a rights deep freeze, if you will, until now. Uh, in Pakistan, there has been a perpetual tension for all its history between those who want participatory democracy, who want pluralism, who want decentralization, and those who wish to centralize and run an authoritarian Praetorian state in the name of Islam. Mm. And, and that particular uh, um, battle has been fought repeatedly in Pakistan. It has been lost many times as well by those who aspire to pluralism, but it has been fought consistently and the military has been pushed back uh, consistently. It reasserts itself, which is why I think that there is, there is something very encouraging but very um, hopeful yet naive about how, for example, Egypt is, is being viewed by, well, the very brave Egyptians that stood up to the Mubarak regime because... What we found, for example, in Pakistan, our historical experience has been that it is very, very it is easy to overthrow individual dictators. It is very, very difficult to overthrow an institutional dictatorship. Mubarak has been overthrown. Will the Egyptian military allow a genuine pluralism to take root? Only time will tell. Mm -hmm. We can't say that yet. Come back to the local, the Pakistani, the homegrown, in your case, family-grown human rights values. Where else, outside of your father's own extraordinary story, I mean, growing up as a child with Papa in jail, uh, what do you lean on? I think that, you know, we are all, at the end of the day, creatures of our values, and we are creatures of what we cannot abide, what we cannot live with. And I find that I cannot live with, I cannot abide intolerance, bigotry, and lack of opportunity. I'm really interested in what the movement today against the sort of post-colonial state draws on nearly a century of, of the struggle against 
the original colonial situation. The anti-colonial and the anti-post-colonial movements connect and inspire each other and feed each other or not. So when you're talking about the movements, what we were talking about was political movements. And what I'm saying is that political movements are, if you're looking at this from the nation-state framework, are regional. Okay, So really, to generalize, what I'm trying to say is that to talk about movements, uh, you know, a movement in Pakistan or a movement in India really doesn't work because conceptually it's a very woolly idea because really there are multiple movements and there are multiple realities in these countries. Mm. Some of them do tie into the colonial ethos and others don't. Mm. Some of them do tie into anti-colonial movements, do seek inspiration from them, others don't. The anti-colonial movement, which was conceptually based on, on male and the idea of liberty and, mm. and, 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 you know, those very uh, peculiarly Western philosophical uh, 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 ideas which were talked about and, and also was uh, the anti-colonial movement certainly at the national level was transacted by a series of constitutional lawyers who talked a lot of law. So, so, so it was very different to what is happening where today in, in like I said, uh, uh, in southern Afghanistan and um, in Pakistan up to the Atak Fort, which is the geographical divider, you have something that perceives itself as an anti-colonial movement, which is the whole Taliban Al-Qaeda ideology. Uh, it uses the language and the rhetoric of anti-colonialism. Interesting. But the, it's, what it propagates is nihilistic, is destructive, is abusive, and is corrosive to ideas of human rights and liberty, as someone like me would understand. Uh, Do you see? So, nevertheless, it views itself as an anti-colonial movement. Movements that challenge the abusive state are often abusive and commit human rights abuses themselves. The state in South Asia, in India, in Pakistan, in Bangladesh in Sri Lanka, is an abusive entity. Hmm. Where do you see the United States in all this? The government, the culture, the media, the people, the politics? Are we engaged? Well, I think, for example, that essentially the, 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 uh, the U.S. relationship in Pakistan has remained with the military. Um, it has always been a defense relationship. Um, now, there is, of course, for the first time, an attempt to provide civilian aid to strengthen uh, perhaps an alternative power center in this country. And you find that the discussion in the U.S. is, oh, well, why isn't you know Pakistan and Pakistanis, why aren't they loving the U.S.? Well, do it for 30 years and maybe they will. But that's what it takes. It doesn't happen overnight. You cannot undo 50 years and, and there's also by the way there's also this other great big misconception that somehow what was wrong with US policy in Pakistan began with George W. Bush and somehow it all, it all ought to have corrected itself with the uh, ascent of, of Barack Obama to the presidency and that's just not the case. That's a historical inaccuracy the US has been a player post-Cold War player in, 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 in this part of the world 
it has really not acquitted itself extremely well. And perhaps it will now, but it needs to spend a few decades doing it. And then we'll see. What I do know is one thing, and that is that disengagement is not an option. It's not, neither is it an option, nor is it desirable. Um, the U.S. must engage with the world as the premier power in the world. It must engage with the world. And it must engage with the world as a force for good. And I think that there is plenty within, within uh, uh, the America, American society and the political system that can make that happen. Explain. Well, it should begin with um, a greater understanding of, of the fact that the rule of law, respect for human rights, is non-negotiable. And it's non-negotiable at all ends. Which means that neither Pakistan nor the US can cherry-pick. They can't decide, oh, it suits our interest to press the buttons on this rights issue, and it suits our interest to get together and violate rights in that context. It's either, either dignity and human rights are indivisible and apply to all in all situations, or it all rapidly descends into a sham. Ali Dayan Hassan, that's a start. Thank you. Human Rights Watch, I've got to say, gives us insight. It also gives us all courage. Thank you for what you do. You're welcome. Ben Mandelkern produced and Henry Peck edited this conversation in Lahore with the Pakistan Director of Human Rights Watch, Ali Dayan Hassan. Our series, Another Pakistan, is a co-production of the Watson Institute and the Asia Society. Zamine Ansari is our producer in Pakistan, thanks also to Bina Sarwar of the Jung Media Group. The conversations continue from South Asia and also online. Listeners, please feedback your views, your Pakistan, with a comment on our website, radioopensource.org. I'm Christopher Leiden. Thank you for being part of the Open Source Conversation.